morning, loved ones. It is so great to be with y'all this morning. And visitors, thank you for joining us as well. I think I'm actually starting the wrong series today. I should have been starting Church on Fire because I see all the fans going. Um, And if you feel a gentle, calm breeze, that is not the Holy Spirit. That is the AC that will occasionally kick on and uh, and cool your bodies. But um, thank you so much for being here. And visitors, if you have any questions about Fourth Avenue, we would love to get to know you and your family and love y'all. And I want to reiterate one announcement before we get into this this morning. Uh, Laurie is having that reception after class today, and I asked that y'all, if you can make it, please stick around for it, because Laurie has been so instrumental in this church. And I, my mom, she is our church everything person, <laughs> like Laurie was, and I know the amount of work that she does that goes unnoticed, and she's not in a role where she gets a lot of attention or recognition, but she deserves it, um, because she has been the glue of Fourth Avenue for so long, and for almost 20 years of service, yeah. So uh, make sure y'all stick around to honor her. Laurie, we love you so much. Have you ever had so much anger stored up in your heart towards a person or a thing, an entity, that every time you thought of it, it just made you have this visceral reaction, just this angry vitriol? Church, I have something to confess. That was me when I lived in Arkansas, and that entity was my internet provider. I can't explain to you the absolute horror of this company. And for the sake of integrity, I'm not going to mention their name. But if you're watching, you know who you are. I had a four-year-long war with this company to try to get somewhat stable internet while I was living in Searcy. And it was such a challenge. And it got so bad that we called technicians to our house so many times that I started to know them by name. And I'm I'm pretty sure they knew me by name. It's like, oh, not this dingus guy again. But anyway, I kept persisting because their whole thing is, you know, it's the best service in town, the best deal in the area. But things were not as they seemed. (laughs) It was quite the opposite And I just fought and fought and fought to try to get something stable. And I kid you not, whenever I first found out I was moving to Nashville, my first thought was, yes, I'm free from the tyranny of this company. Uh, But, you know, I'm working on it. Let me me tell you this. I have never once given a one-star review on something. And I still haven't. But let me tell you, in my heart, I gave about a million one-star reviews to this company because I was so frustrated with them. Don't we oftentimes villainize people? And other, maybe it's not people, maybe it's a company. Maybe it's a group of people. I can't be the only one that does. Have a team that you love rooting against maybe as much as you like rooting for your own team. Maybe that week, or this week, it's the Florida Gators. Sorry, guys. Um, But it could be that. I don't know if it's just me, but whenever I'm driving in traffic, and you know the amount of places in this area, right, 
that go from two lanes merging to one, and then everybody is taking their time in the same lane, and then there's that one car that flies in the right lane and merges at the last second. Like, I'm not the only one that thinks that person's the enemy, correct? <laughs> but don't we oftentimes make ourselves out to be the hero of our story and the other people are the bad guys? The other people are the villains? All throughout history, even people who have done terrible things against humanity see themselves as the good guys. And that these other people, the ones that are the problem with society, they are the bad ones. We are quick to see ourselves as the hero and never as the villain. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that is, and we're going to talk about a lot of those reasons as we move forward in the series, but one big reason as to why I think that is, is because we believe the cultural lie that we are good or perfect exactly as we are. One of the most common narratives that I hear people say is, I think I'm a good person. And the reason behind that is normally they're comparing themselves with other people. And they say, you know, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I don't kill. I may not be Mother Teresa, but I know I'm, I'm better than most. How often do we hear narratives like that? Or perhaps believe them ourselves? And to be clear, I am not saying that there is nothing good in people, right? Very clearly from the beginning of Scripture, God created the world, the cosmos, good. God loves his creation. However, thinking that we are the good guys is a really good guys because it's fake. It's not true because the enemy is much closer than we realize. And if you couldn't tell from the video as I was walking up here, which uh, that is the handiwork of Libby, who we recently just hired and we're really excited about her, we're starting a new series called The Enemy. And the focus is on the me part. We're going to be looking at many of the enemies in scripture as a way to look closer into the sin that's in our heart. And the goal of this series is to help us identify that sin that is deeply rooted in us so that we can better partner with Jesus in beginning or continuing the healing journey of redemption, to become more like him, to fully restore the image and likeness of God in our lives. And you might be wondering, why are we going to do a series on sin? And that could come from a lot of different places. Maybe that comes from a history of a church where they loved calling out sin and everybody out there. And they loved, maybe the pastor loved preaching down to people and calling out sin in them as if they don't have it themselves. That is not what this is. As I've said before, any sermon that I give is a sermon that I believe that God first gives to me. I am on this journey with you guys. And I know I have so much that I need to grow in and so much of my old self that's still sticking around that needs to be destroyed. And I'm not here to cast down any judgment on anybody as if I were the judge anyway. I am with you in this journey. And there are so many reasons why we're doing a series on sin. One is simply because we shy away from talking about it and naming it in our lives. Perhaps one of the biggest sins uh, in our culture today is the sin of depriving yourself of the things that you want. And many understand scripture and how it talks about sin as this rule book of all the things that you don't do. 
and that it's really oppressive. But the way that I understand it, the way that I operate, is I believe that following the way of Jesus is actually the thing that brings the most joy and flourishing in a person's life. And I really believe in St. Ignatius of Loyola's definition of sin, in which he describes it as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. God isn't telling us to watch out for sin because he wants to suppress us, but because he wants to give us the deepest longing of our souls. And some churches don't really talk about sin, and I understand it from a preacher perspective. Like, if all I did was say really positive, encouraging messages all the time, that would be great because people like it a lot more. And there's certainly space for that. And in this series, even though we're talking about really hard and heavy and weighty topics, there's going to be so much hope and grace filled with all of them. But this is something we do need to talk about. A Christian scholar named Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, Speaking of Sin, she mentioned how she had a foreign classmate whenever she was going through seminary that said this, all you Americans care about is justification. In other words, making it to heaven. You love sinning and being forgiven, sinning and being forgiven, but no one seems to want off that hamster wheel. Have you ever heard of sanctification or becoming more holy? Is anyone interested in learning to sin a little less? This quote is convicting for me. We know, right, that God's grace is like the ocean. It is deep. It is huge. It's all-encompassing. And because of that, we, I think a lot of times, can take it for granted and just sort of coast in life. And though we may not say it, sometimes we function with this flippant attitude of, you know, I'll just do it and God's going to forgive me anyway. But after experiencing enough times of failure in our lives, we may lose hope that it's actually possible for me to change in this life, for me to actually defeat my demons and move forward. But here's the truth, church. For whatever reason, God seeks to redeem the world through us. Why? I don't know. Take that up with him. But through the church, through the people of God, God wants to move. God wants us to be a co-heir with Jesus and exercise co-dominion with him to cultivate a new world and a new humanity. And that's why spiritual formation and sanctification in our lives is so important because to ensure that this world looks like heaven, there needs to be people that look like Jesus. And as we as a church partner in the ministry of Jesus to help bring heaven down to earth, we really need to take our part in spiritual formation seriously. And I believe a big part of that is identifying the areas in our life that don't look much like Jesus and turn our hearts to reorient them in the way of Christ. So as such, we're not just going to obsess over sin in this series, but we're also going to be looking at what the opposite end of that is. How do we pursue the righteousness of Christ? So as a church, let's collectively lean into the power of the Holy Spirit and fight against our sin. And to start, let's get clear on what I mean by sin, because there's really not a great English equivalent for the word. In Hebrew, there's three primary words for sin. One is chata, 
or kata. Let me hear you say kata. No, I'm kidding. But that one's a fun one, which means to miss the mark. Another one is avon, which, or avon, sorry, I just butchered that, which means to act wrongly. And that's where we translate the word iniquity in the Old Testament. Another word is pasha, which that means to rebel. It's like this full-fledged revolt, and that's what we normally translate as transgression. But with these in mind, you kind of see the general idea of sin in Scripture is going against the will of God. In the Greek translation, there are similar words to describe these three. But I think the best definition of sin in the whole Bible is James 4.17. It is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. This definition, it hits at both like not doing the bad stuff, but also you know the good you ought to be doing. And not doing that is also a sin. It's a very all-encompassing thing. And the idea of this is really to hit the mark. And hitting the mark, actually the root word, a lot of scholars think, the root word of how, where we get Torah, it comes from the root word yara, which means to aim or hit the mark. So if Torah observance, which is the first five books of the Bible, it's oftentimes considered the law, um, if that is in the Jewish conception, if that is what the mark is we're trying to hit, and Jesus is the law incarnate, and Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the law, then that means for Christians, Jesus is the mark to hit. So we can think of the life of spiritual formation becoming like Jesus. If you think of it like this metaphor, like an archer that's pulling back the arrow, aiming at a target. And we improve our aim in hitting that target by living by the Spirit, by living like Jesus, turning from our sin. So if Jesus is the one that we're aiming to follow, if Jesus is the mark to hit, let's hear what Jesus has to say about sin. Turn with me to Matthew 5. As Jesus is talking about being the fulfillment of the law, of the Torah, he aims at this exact cultural phenomenon I was talking about earlier, combating this notion that I'm the good guy and everyone else is bad. In many places in Matthew 5, you're going to see Jesus say something like, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said being this cultural assumption, this thing that we all think is right or wrong, but I say unto you, what hitting the mark really looks like is this. For instance, in verse 21, he says, you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Woo! Not pulling any punches there. I guess simply not killing people is not the bar that Jesus is shooting for for the new humanity. There's a lot more than that, right? What Jesus is doing is taking things into our heart and in our motive. He's saying, if you are angry with somebody else, you are liable to judgment. Okay, well, I think a lot of us are probably guilty of that one. Let's go down a few more verses in verse 27. He says, you have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, 
Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Wow. There's your positive message today, church. Go forth and conquer. Um, That's the thing. If some of you are kind of hesitant about talking about sin, have you read Jesus? <laughs> I mean, Jesus takes things so much deeper. It's not just this surface level action. He is going deep into the heart, into the root, <laughs> into the motivations that we have. It seems kind of hard to follow that, right? And in case you were wondering that, let's just look at the last verse of chapter five, shall we? Just to sum this up, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How are we doing with that? (laughs) And the Greek word for perfect here is related to the word telos, which means one's ultimate end or aim. It's where we get the word telescope. You're able to see a far distance um, to the thing you're looking at. And that idea is kind of being what we were created to be, being our truest selves that God wanted. In other words, hitting the mark, being perfectly whole in our God-created selves. And I know, I don't know about y'all, but I know for me, I'm not doing too great in the perfect department. And this is why I believe Jesus says in Mark 10 that only God is good. The measuring stick of goodness is not me versus my friend. It's not whether I've done these bad things or not. It's not if, you know, I'm 60% good, and that's kind of a passing score in school, so I think I'm probably mostly good. No, the standard for good is our perfectly good God. And I think all of us in here would be quick to admit that we aren't perfect, that we make a lot of mistakes. But if the measuring stick or the target to hit is our perfectly good God, it's not just that we make some mistakes. It's that we have deep brokenness in us, that we fall woefully short of hitting that mark. And we consistently contribute to the generational brokenness of the cosmos, of the universe. There is so much in our hearts, and I know for sure in my heart, that needs the healing touch of Jesus. So this morning, let's be real with ourselves. Let's look inward and become aware and address the brokenness that's in us instead of just coasting. So here's the charge this morning. As we recognize a bigger view of our sin, let's shatter our judgment and embrace repentance. Jesus' understanding of sin is pretty alarming. It's a sobering thing, I'm not gonna lie. If we really think about every motive, every thought that we have that does not line up with the perfect God, we fall pretty short of that. We realize that our sin is pretty big. And what that means is we have to be extremely careful about judging other people for their sin and all the sinners out there, right? Those that are the real problems in our society. We gotta look right here first. And Jesus addresses this specifically in the Sermon on the Mount as well. He says in chapter seven, do not judge others and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. 
And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. (laughs) This is a sobering verse, section of verses, right? The standard that we use to judge other people is the standard that we will be judged with. I don't know about y'all, I tend to take scripture authoritatively and believe the words of Jesus when he says this. We gotta be very careful about judging other people. Which is why I want to live a life of grace instead of judgment. So church, instead of obsessing over all the sin that's in the world out there, let's start by examining the log in our own eye. And I'm not saying we turn a blind eye to sin and injustice that's happening in our community right now. No, the church is supposed to confront that stuff. What I'm saying is we have no place to judge another person for their sin. We are not the judge. So this morning, let's ask the Lord to destroy that nasty desire to judge other people as we recognize how much our own actions have contributed to the hurting of this world. And as we become aware of our sin, let's repent of it. Let's start walking in the way of Jesus. I think consciously or subconsciously, we wanna stay away from true repentance as much as we can. If you think about the commercialization of Christian holidays, right? We make a big deal of Christmas, celebrate baby Jesus, and it's a a good thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Same thing with Easter. It's the biggest celebration of Christians in the world. We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. That's great. And there's some commercialization, some clothes you can get at Dillard's or whatever. There's really not much commercialization of Ash Wednesday, (laughs) which is all about repentance and turning to God. Like there's not a figure like Santa that wears sackcloth and whenever people come up, they confess their sins and then they sprinkle them with ashes or something like that. We're kind of missing an opportunity, I think, here. But I think there's something in this that's just, we don't like to admit we're wrong. We don't like to admit that we have fault and we definitely don't want to do the hard work of righting the wrongs. We can oftentimes think that repentance is just sort of feeling sorry about something that we've done, feeling remorse but that is only a little piece of the pie of repentance. Barbara Brown Taylor, in that same book I referenced earlier, she says this, we would rather feel badly about the damage we have done than get estimates on the cost of repair. We would rather learn to live with guilt than face the hard work of new life. But new life is what repentance is all about. It's not just turning from something, it is a turning to something. It is replacing that which leads to death in our lives with that which leads to life in Christ. I think we can learn a lot from our friends in AA about repentance. Repentance includes an admission that we are powerless against our sin apart from Christ. It is a recognition of our wrongs. It's a confession of our wrongs. It's a turning to God as the source of healing and seeking to make amends for the wrongs that we've done. And I think that's the part that makes people wanna back away more than anything. But that's what repentance looks like. There's an element of forgiveness that's baked into it. So church, may we be a church of repentance, not creating scapegoats for all the world's problems that are out there, right? 
but collectively turn from our crucified selves to our crucified Lord. And we're going to talk a lot more about what repentance looks like in regards to all these different topics that we're going to cover in this series. But it's so important that we do this together. I know realizing how much brokenness is in us is sort of a scary thing. Knowing that God's standard for us is to be perfect and to be whole like he is. And you may be tempted, like I have been a lot of points in my life, to be anxious about that. To be anxious about how is God going to deal with me? knowing that I have so much deep brokenness in me, that I am so far away from what he wants. And you might be looking at this standard and being like, wow, there is nothing I can possibly do to hit that standard. And you're right. 100% correct. You cannot do it. And that is why Jesus came. And why Jesus spent time with the tax collectors and sinners of his day. Because God loves us so much in spite of our sin in spite of our constant rebellion against him. We may not be good enough to be perfect on our own, but we are good enough for Jesus to consider us worthy of unconditional love. Jesus chose to be with and associate with sinners because he loves us so deeply and he wants to set us free from the captivity of our sin. And the beauty in realizing just how big and monumental our sin is, is it helps us see how much more monumental God's grace is. Because if we think of our sin being really small, it's only the big bad stuff, then that means God's grace is very small. And that means our grace and forgiveness for other people is very small. (laughs) But knowing that we fall woefully short of God's standard may seem like bad news, but it is actually some of the best possible news imaginable. Because this means that salvation cannot possibly come from our works or our merit or earning it, right? God's love and God's grace is bigger than we can possibly imagine. And this idea, it just sort of destroys the thought of legalism, right? thinking that we are holier and better than other people because we observe things the right way. (laughs) It helps us realize, in reality, we all need a savior. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. We need a savior for eternal life, yes, but also a savior and a deliverer from the captivity of our sin right here in this life. And because of the cross and resurrection of our savior, he has forever destroyed the power of sin in our lives. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is 1 Peter 2. This is Peter talking about Jesus. It says he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate whenever he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Because remember, God is the judge, right? Not us. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Though the weight of our sin may be as heavy as cinder blocks on our shoulders, maybe today there is something you feel just the deepest shame about. Maybe it's a decision you made a while ago. Maybe it's a series of decisions in your life that you just feel cut to the core and feel like you are worthless and not good enough, whatever. 
But the cross means that your sin is not the truest thing about you. In Christ, your identity is not a wretched sinner anymore. You are now a saint. Our sins are crucified on the cross of Jesus so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. In Christ, he actually gives us the freedom to be able to do what is good when before all that we were doing was sinning and sinning and sinning. He gives us a path forward. And though we may have to suffer the consequences of sin in our life because boy does sin have consequences. The cross has spoken purity, perfection, and wholeness over you. Sin is defeated and does not have the final word in our life. The blood of the lamb cleanses us. And the wounds of Christ are healing the wounds of our souls. This morning, if there's anything that you want to confess, if there's something that you want prayers for in your life, we're going to have people line up around this room during this next song. And worship team, I'm going to invite y'all to go ahead and come up here. If there's something going on that you would like prayers for, we would love to pray with you. We would love to be with you in whatever pain and hardship that you're going through. And if you want to be baptized this morning, we can make that happen as well. I want to end today and maybe end in a lot of sermons in this series moving forward, like how a lot of churches throughout time have done, end with corporate confession. And if you would go ahead and stand up with me. And you may not want to uh, take part in this confession for yourselves, but we're going to spend a little bit of time as a church confessing our sins and repenting before the Lord. Do we, do we have this up there? No? Okay. Then uh, if you would, just close your eyes and in your hearts, confess this with me. Almighty God, we recognize and confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in motive, in word, in deed. We have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Deepen within us our sorrow for the wrong we have done and the good we have left undone. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and heal that which is broken.